chairs to my left, your right. Uh, if the rest of you can be standing, we'll have a song before our sermon this morning. Love it. It's wonderful. All right, I've led this song a time or two before, and it it fits well with what we'll be talking about in our sermon this morning. So let's sing ancient words. Holy words, long preserved for our walk in this world. They resound with God's own heart. Oh, let the ancient words impart words of life, words of hope. Give us strength, help us cope in this world wherever we roam. Ancient words will guide us home. Ancient words ever true. Changing me and changing you. We have come with open hearts. Oh, let the ancient words impart holy words of our faith and it down to this age. Came to us through sacrifice. Oh, heed the faithful words of Christ. Holy words, long preserved for our walk in this world. They resound with God's own heart. Oh, let the ancient words impart ancient words ever true changing me and changing you. We have come with open hearts. Oh, let the ancient words impart ancient words ever true, changing me and changing you. We have come with open hearts. Oh, let the ancient words impart. We have come with open hearts. Oh, let the ancient words impart. You may be seated. Singing that song, I remembered... Mr. Bible. Um, Not many of you were here in the 80s. I was. I was little. Uh, But we used to have a big cardboard Bible that was large enough that a person could get into it and it would be a human Bible costume. And he would come out at children's worship and stuff. If you're visiting, we don't do this today. It was really scary. It's a wonder that anyone that grew up here ever opened their Bibles after Mr. Bible would run in and, and say silly things and we would sing songs to the Bible and, and, and this. It, so anyways, um, this church has a long history with the Bible. 
in all kinds of different ways. We are a Bible-believing church. Um, and today I want to talk about what, what the Bible is, how we should think about it. Uh, I, reading the Bible is not as popular and common and trendy today as it used to be in churches and Christian homes. And I think some of that comes from us having old ideas about it, bad ideas about it. And so today I want to talk about what it means to, to really wear the Word of God. And I get that idea from Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 12, has this description of what Christians should wear, what kind of clothing they should have, what kind of characteristics they should take on, and, and what they should, in fact, look like. So in Colossians 3 and verse 12, it says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Yes. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. He gives this, this beautiful description, Paul, when he's writing this letter to the Colossians, of, of how Christians should look, compassionate, kind, humble, Gentle, patient, loving, forgiving, unified, peaceful. And then here towards the end, he says, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. And as he's talking to them about what they should look like, there's this idea that Christians should regularly be coming together into this family and that the message of Christ, the word of God, the teachings of the church should just be among them and dwelling among them in a way that brings richness to life and community and family. And it's this, this beautiful image for me in this list of things that Christians should wear, this idea that we should wear the Word of God and that we should wear it and let it dwell among us. And when we think about what that would look like, I think we need to first ask, what really is this book that we call the Bible? What is the Bible? Because there's lots of things that go on, on bumper stickers and t-shirts, right? That the Bible is a love letter. That the Bible is a history book that it's an instruction book or a rule book. Um, another way to think about the Bible is actually to think of it as, as a library. It is, in fact, not really one book. It's 66 books written by lots of different authors over thousands of years. It's really uh, a library more than it is a book. But what is this book? What is the Bible? And all of those descriptions, love letter, history book, instruction book, rule book, is it each of those things? Yes, but does any one of those capture what it really is and what God believes that the Word of God can do in us and through us if we really, really spend time with it? I don't think they're complete enough uh, in themselves to do that. So I think when we want to begin talking about what the Bible is, I think what we really need to do 
is to think about how it functions, how it works in those who read it. What does it produce in those who are really willing to approach the Bible and let it uh, shape us and mold us? Uh, We need to think about what it means for the message of Christ to dwell among us richly. And I want to suggest in this list in Colossians 3, the virtues, compassion, humility, kindness, gentleness, that those things, when you look at that list of the characteristics of a Christian, that list sounds a lot like the fruits of the Spirit. There's a lot of overlap between this list of the clothing that Christians should wear and the list of what the Spirit produces in Paul's other letters. And what you begin to see is that Paul really believes that the Holy Spirit comes into the life of the believer and begins to produce all of these things in them. And I think sometimes we think that if you read the Bible, you'll grow in all of these virtues and characteristics of faith. But really, the Spirit is what produces those in you. But the Bible is still having some important role. And I think when you think about the Spirit producing characteristics and traits in the life of a Christian, and you ask, what then is the Bible doing? I believe that what the Bible does is it puts a scalpel into the hand of a master potter. It gives God a tool to constantly be shaping us and molding us and forming us more into who he wants us to be, cutting away that which needs to be gotten rid of, uh, shaping and molding that which is rough and needs to be smoothed out. That, That God wants to use scripture to shape us and mold us and transform us. And if we want to be dressed like a Christian, we need the Spirit producing all of these virtues, but we need God's Word helping to refine and make all of them perfect or more perfect until the day that Christ comes and makes us all fully into the image of who he's called us to be. You know, the Bible is often thought of as a guidebook or uh, an instruction book or a rule book, especially by those who don't like it. Um, You'll hear people uh, from time to time say, oh, that old book of rules and instructions. I'm not interested in an ancient 2,000-year-old book full of rules telling me what I can't do and all the fun I shouldn't have. Right? You've heard that. The Bible really is, while it has rules and instructions, it's really much, much more than that. It's simplifying it by miles to think of the Bible as only a rule book. Uh, One of my favorite chapters in Psalms uh, is Psalm 119. Psalm 119. And I, I like it because it's incredibly artistic in ways that we unfortunately in English can't really appreciate. Um, Psalm 119 is 22 sections long, and each section has eight verses. And there's one section for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, in, in Hebrew, if you get to the first eight verses, which have at the heading the, the word Aleph, Aleph is the Hebrew first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, every sentence in that section begins with the Hebrew letter Aleph. And if you go to the next section of eight verses, uh, every sentence begins with the Hebrew letter Beth. And it goes all the way through all 22 letters. Um, And it's all about the Word of God. The Word of God, the law of God, the teaching of God, the rules, the statutes, the precepts, the wisdom, the Word. All these different ways of describing God's Word. And it's this beautiful poem that's trying to say, with every single letter in the alphabet, we praise God for His good Word. Because God's Word encompasses 
all of life and all of language and all of literature. We've got to use everything we can to try and explain how good God's word is. And so over and over again, uh, of the 176 verses, at least 171 of them refer to God's word in some way. Uh, and some people believe that it's actually all but one of the verses refer to God's word in some way. It depends on how loose your definition of God's word is. But God's word breathes life into us. God's word brings blessing. God's word transforms and shapes and molds. And over and over again. And I want to read a couple of these sections to you. Starting in, in verse 1, it says, Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do no wrong, but follow his ways. You've laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame. When I consider all your commands, I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. The first section of eight uh, verses here has this promise that with obedience to God's law and precepts and statutes comes great blessing. And that rejection of those things can bring shame. With obedience comes blessing. With rejection and denial comes shame. There's this, this beginning of a, a promise that God's way of doing things is better than the world's way of doing things. Well, that does sound a little bit like a rule book, doesn't it? But it continues. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Well, if the first one promises blessing for obedience and, and shame for uh, a lack of obedience or disobedience, the, this, the B section here, Beth, has a different view of God's word. God's word, if you'll just read it, will get written on your heart in such a way that it will prevent you from sinning. Oh, yeah. And it will guide your feet towards, towards the goodness of God. And, and suddenly now, it's not follow the rules and get blessed or cursed. It's this idea of if, if you just read the words, they'll guide you and protect yeah. you and shape you and transform you. So the word becomes the source of your being transformed into the person that's going to do what God wants. Well, that doesn't sound like a rule book at all. That sounds like God is going to bless you and transform you if you'll just read his word. The word will help you to live the life you need to live and the life that God is calling you to do. And so it's, it's then this incredible tool in God's hand to shape us into who he wants us to be and desires for us to live in the world that we live in. Skip over probably a couple pages if you've got your Bibles out to Psalm 119, 105. Not many chapters in the Bible have over 100 verses. This one does. 
This is one of my favorite descriptions of the word in the entire chapter. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. I've taken an oath and confirmed it that I will follow your righteous laws. I've suffered much. Preserve my life, Lord, according to your word. Accept, Lord, the willing praise of my mouth and teach me your laws. And when you think about the Bible as a lamp in the hand of a father, it becomes a different thing altogether. Uh, it doesn't have rules and instructions and commands and ways to live. Yes, that's all there. But it's not intended to be cruel as a stick that's pushing you and prodding you in a certain direction. It's intended to be a lamp. And when we think about the rules that God's giving us, I think we need to have this image of walking out into a path in the woods and there's your father who you trust and the father who is good to you and he's got a lamp and he says, son, daughter, we've got to get through this dark path on this wooded, uh, in, this, in these woods. But I've got a lamp if you want to come with me. And if you want to come with me in this lamp, it's going to go better than if you just start running through the woods in the dark. The wisdom of God is a light. It's not bossy. It's not oppressive. It's a way of living, a light on the path to guide you through the tough times in life, through the wilderness and the valleys and the shadow of despair and all the things that you think, man, I want a light to get me through this day. God's word can be that light. And obedience to do it does bring blessing and the word shapes you so that you can become shaped into the person that God wants you to be. So is it a guide? Absolutely. But is it an oppressive rule book? Absolutely not. It's rich and filled with the words of God and the blessings that come with it. And a lot of times we think of the Bible as, as history. The Bible is history. And is the Bible history? Yes. Does it tell the story of God and his interaction with humanity through, throughout all of human history? Yes. Does it tell the story of Jesus Christ, born in, in Bethlehem, Jesus of Nazareth and Galilee, who did his ministry in all kinds of different areas around the area of Jerusalem before he went there and was crucified and resurrected? Yes, it tells that story with great accuracy. And to make sure that it's truthful, it gives us four different witnesses that show us the story of the gospel of Jesus and the, the biography of his life, the way that he lived, the way that he taught, the things that he said from four different points of view so that we can see it in living color and in 3D. tells us the story of the early church, the early Christians, and how they took the gospel into all nations so that all might know the story of Jesus. It gives us all of those historical details, and it is history, but it's more than history. And I say that because, uh, one, some of it's not history, some of it's poetry, some of it is uh, laws, and, and that's actually not history. Uh, the genres are different. Uh, but even the books that are historical are not written for simply historical reasons. It's the expectation of the authors of all of the history books that are in the Bible that when you read these stories about what happened 1,000, not 1,000, 2,000, 3, 4, 5, 6,000 years ago, that it will inspire in you a desire to be moved and shaped into the person that God wants you to be. History books don't do that, at least not as intentionally as the Bible does. 
Luke believed that if you would read his orderly and historical account of Jesus Christ, who he was and what he did, that it would inspire you to become a believer in Jesus Christ, that it would give you a desire for relationships with other Christians, a desire for a relationship with God, a desire to be transformed more into the image of this man, Jesus, that you would be inspired to want to be saved and live a life of faith. I, I like uh, history. I like biography. But you're not going to go read about the founding fathers of the United States and desire to have a different kind of relationship with other people in your lives. You might be encouraged by how they lived. You might be discouraged by how they lived. You might uh, find that what they did is interesting or educational, or it might teach you something about the way things were and help you see things as they are, maybe how they could be. That can happen. But you're not going to say because of these founding people in our country's history, I might be saved. You don't. No one's trying to do that. But when the Bible is writing history, it's trying to write history that will result in you being more the person that God wants you to be and less the person that the world desires for you to be. It changes you. It changes you. So while the Bible is history, it is more his God's story. And that story should bring about in us a desire to change who we are and how we live. It is uh, a tool in the hand of the master who desires for us to be made more in his image, in the image of Jesus Christ. But there's a point I think that needs to be made for Christians today who want just a little bit of scripture. Uh, we like to say things uh, like, uh, yeah, I, I like the Bible, but I just, I'm not that into reading, or I don't like reading old stuff, or sometimes it's not that interesting to me. Uh, or we think that if we just go to class and hear someone else who's read the Bible tell us about it, uh, that that will be enough. And the problem is that when it comes to the Bible, that a little bit of Bible knowledge can actually be a bad thing. And I want to show you what I mean uh, in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1, and this is just kind of an illustration of how Satan can use a little bit of Scripture to actually do a bad thing in your life and in the world. Uh, Matthew 7 begins, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. These are red letters. They're the words of Jesus. He's in the Sermon on the Mount, and he's preaching. And he says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, if you're someone that lives in the world and you don't go to Bible class and you haven't been getting sermons and you don't read and study the Bible for yourself, what you're going to do uh, is be that young adult that goes to the coffee shop and when a Christian says, uh, yeah, I believe in this Bible that I'm reading here at the coffee shop, uh, they'll say, well, do you think that I'm a bad person because I do this, that, or other sin? And you say, well, I, I think that might be a sin. And they say, well... Jesus said, you shouldn't judge. Didn't Jesus say that you shouldn't judge and how you judge others, you'll be judged that way? You say, well, it is red letters, and that is what it says. So yes, he did say that. Ha! I knew it! Christians are judgmental. You're the worst. Jesus said so. Let's keep reading, because a little bit of the Bible is a bad thing. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? 
you hypocrite. And the world says, yeah, Jesus says the church is full of hypocrites with planks in their eyes. You planky-eyed people, stay out of my business. I like this Jesus. He says what I say, right? Because with a little bit of scripture, Jesus can say all kinds of things. Because if that's all you know about this text, then what you think Jesus is saying is mind your own business, leave me alone. My standards are my standards and yours are yours. So just get out of my business and out of my life and out of my problems. You're being judgmental and Jesus doesn't like you and I don't either. But at least Jesus and I agree about that. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Wait a minute. Wait, Jesus wasn't saying don't judge, and Jesus wasn't saying mind your own business. Jesus is saying if you want to help your brother with an eye problem, make sure you're the kind of person who's working on your own eyes first. This is instructions on how to confront sin in your brother and sister's life. Wait a minute, I thought it was how to mind your own business. Nope. I thought it was about how how you can't judge or you'll get judged. Nope. It's saying that the kind of people that we need dealing with sin in the world need to be the kind of people who start by dealing with sin in themselves and then come alongside other people and say, I'm working on me, Can, can I help you work on you too? Let's walk together. Well, the world doesn't like that message. So the world just has just enough scripture for Satan to do a whole lot of trouble, a whole lot of problems. And this isn't the only place this happens. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, uh, Satan begins uh, his temptation by quoting someone to Eve. Who's he quoting? God. Satan begins tempting Eve to, to, to eat from the fruit that she wasn't supposed to eat from by quoting God. Satan goes to Jesus in the wilderness, and by the time he gets to the the third temptation, he's quoting someone. Who's he quoting? He's quoting the Old Testament scriptures to Jesus. Isn't it true that the Word of God says, throw yourself off of here and angels will rescue you and you won't even stub your toe or hurt. The hair of your head is going to be challenged. He quotes God to Jesus which doesn't work, by the way, because Jesus knows more than just a little bit of Scripture. God doesn't want us to know just enough Scripture to get sound bites and platitudes and cliches to get us through the hiccups of life. God wants us to immerse ourselves in His book, in His words, in His life-giving teachings so that, that He has the tool that a potter needs. God wants us to be shaped and transformed by understanding what this book says and what it teaches us, but not just in a headspace. Like the B section in Psalms says that the reading of this word becomes written on your heart and it changes how you live. You actually become changed by reading these words. And not just enough for Satan to have a a foothold to twist it around and mess you up and get you to think that the wrong things you're doing are God's idea. Don't buy into that. Read this enough. You don't have to memorize it. You don't have to study it. You don't have to be able to call chapter and verse. It's great if you do. There's people that do that with great ability to talk to other people and share their faith. But there's other people that just read it and they let it influence their mind and their heart. And it becomes written on their heart. And it becomes a lamp in the wilderness. 
that gets you through the tough stuff in life. And you just read it. And you just let it wash over you. If you've ever seen a smooth stone that's in the, at the bed of a creek, that stone's been laying there for hundreds of years just letting the water roll over it and roll over it and roll over it and wash those, smooth, those rough edges away and those jagged points away until it's smooth to the touch. And you just pick it up and you hold it and you think, this is, look what the water has done. God wants his word to be that water washing over us smoothing away our rough edges, bringing about the clothing that Christians are supposed to have of humility and compassion and kindness. Well, that's tough. How do I get that? Well, the Spirit produces in it, and then the water washes over you and smooths it, smooths it out, and it shapes you. And like a potter with a scalpel in his hand, he cuts away that which is extra and that which you don't need and leaves you there more perfect than when he found you. But are you going to rob the master of the scalpel? Are you going to take the rock out of the water and just see how long on the desk it takes to get smooth? It's going to take a while. In fact, it won't happen. God desires for us to be shaped and molded by his word. Hebrews chapter 4, the writer of Hebrews starts talking about the Sabbath rest for the people of God. He says, therefore, since the promise of each entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. The writer of Hebrews is talking about the Old Testament Sabbath. And he says there was a rest that was offered to Israel when they were wandering and when they were coming into this new uh, nation, the promised land that God had given them. He says as Israel was observing the Sabbath, they were invited into a rest. But the invitation to rest still stands. I don't know about you. When life is tough, don't you want to enter God's rest? When you watch the news, don't you want to enter God's rest? When you, when you see the, the challenges that are going on in this world and you know the ones that are going on in your life and in your home and in your family and in your workplace, in your neighborhood, don't you want to enter God's rest? And he talks about how Israel struggled to do it and they struggled with disobedience. But in verse 12, when it's talking about how we can still receive the teaching that others have rejected in the past. He says this, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It edges the thoughts, it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The word of God is alive and active. This is not a stale old historical rule book. The word of God is alive and active. And if we view the Bible as simply an instructional rule book, we might be obedient. But, but we're no more obedient than a well-programmed robot. 
If all the Bible is to you is the rules that you're supposed to follow so that you can do the sin management that Bark was talking about earlier, okay, I've got to learn the rules, I've got to practice doing the rules, I have to at least convince everyone else I'm following the rules even though they don't know about the rules I'm not following. You can be obedient, but it's an obedience that's robotic. And it's not an obedience that comes from being in love with God and being in love with Jesus. And it's not an obedience that brings joy in life. And it's not an obedience that shapes you and molds you into who God wants you to be. It's just robotic obedience. And so while it has rules, the Bible is far, far more than a rule book. And if you view the Bible as simply history, and it is history and it is historical, you might respect who God is and what God's done. You might believe that he has done all the things that are in there, but if all you do is see it as history, and you don't see it as the book that is written to shape you and transform you, you're not going to experience the growth that God has in store for you. And he does have that in store for you. If you just read enough of the Bible, that you give Satan a little bit of a foothold to twist things around and change things in a way that are going to be there just to manipulate you, You're not giving God the scalpel he desires to truly turn you into his masterpiece. But when you give God a lot, a lot of your time, a lot of your attention, and you just bathe yourself in the word of God, you write it on your heart that you might not sin, you allow yourself to be truly changed by these words, these life-giving words. And you may not even understand how you're changing, but God's going to use it. If you'll just put these words in your mind and in front of your eyes and in your heart, God will begin to change what your hands do and your mouth talks about, your brain thinks about, your heart's committed to. Where you go will change, who you love will change, how you love will change. God wants so much for you and he wants it to begin by you loving his word and writing it on your heart. He does it so that he can shape you more into the image of Jesus Christ so that not only do you wear the characteristics and virtues of Christianity, not only do you wear his word, but you will wear the name of his son, Jesus Christ. You call yourself Christian and you start to look like it because you're letting the word do its work. And if you've never made that decision to take on the name of Jesus Christ by being baptized and believing and letting God begin to do the transforming work through his spirit and the word and a family of believers, if you've never decided to do that, then why not do that this morning as we stand and sing? Nearer, still nearer, close to.